Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening and thank you for being with us. Now look, for the last 24 hours, I've had smoke coming out of my ears. I learnt of the arrest of Oliver Schultz, the first Australian to be charged with a war crime murder. Marta Hamilton Smith, the national chairman of the SAS Association, got it right when he said of men like Oliver Schultz that they were, quote, used and overused in Afghanistan, some with nine and 10 deployments. Now, I can assure you, Oliver Schultz had seven deployments, three to Afghanistan in under two years, one rotation, that is the break from the previous deployment, one rotation was only 90 days. Oliver Schultz did approximately 250 missions in two years, a magnificent Australian. Now I have to confess, I've corresponded with his family as far back as 2021. Oliver Schultz's wife told me they were preparing to be named, quote, we know that the ABC won't rest until they get what they want. Let's face it, the ABC have been pivotal in assisting to ruin so many veterans' lives by helping the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force to leak to the public, unquote. Mr. Hamilton Smith is a former South Australian Veterans Affairs Minister. He said, quote, our nation asks a great deal of these men and they endured great danger, exhaustion, and extremely dangerous working conditions. These are some of the finest soldiers that ever left our shores. They are asked to do extraordinary things for their country. And the sooner the truth is established, the better, unquote. Well, let's cut to the chase. Oliver Schultz has been suspended since 2020. His family have been ripped apart. His house has been searched. The message is this. We send these men into war zones. SAS are the very best. So they go to the most dangerous areas. War is fundamentally about kill or be killed. So what we do is we send these men, and it's clear now they're either killed in combat or metaphorically killed when they get home. This man's in custody. What risk is he to any Australian in custody? And I'm sure the family couldn't afford bail. So the fate of the soldier is simple. You're either injured in combat or you're injured when you come home. This is disgraceful treatment of men who every day put their lives on the line. And yes, you'll see all sorts of videos and pictures of Oliver Schultz hoping the public will draw their conclusions that this man's a murderer. Ever since the release of this Barrett report, Men who went to Afghanistan and put their lives on the line have been stood down on the basis of that report. People have been sacked without a single whiff of justice being available to them. And now Oliver Schultz has been charged. At least he'll be able to walk through a court of law. You might recall when the former Prime Minister Morrison called these allegations in the report brutal truths. Never tested, just called them brutal truths. The chief of the defence force. These people had never had access to justice who has never fired a weapon in anger, told us the families of Afghanis will be compensated. What about Oliver Schultz's family? Following the Brereton report, the army chief said he was sickened. Not, I might add, as sickened as the public are at the way our veterans have been treated. And here is Oliver Schultz now thrown into custody. I had a message from his wife. 
She hasn't seen him and she can't visit him. And isn't it interesting that while we charge Oliver Schultz, the Brereton report exonerated the top brass. And for years, not months, these allegations against our finest soldiers have been publicised through the media. Families have been destroyed. Families have been abandoned. These are SAS men. And while Oliver Schultz has been charged, others on return have been thrown under a bus. But all the generals and the brigadiers allegedly in command in Afghanistan, oh yes, they keep their starch shirts, their distinguished service crosses, but the Brereton Report wants you to believe they weren't in command at all. Mr Hamilton Smith, the chairman of the SAS Association, has welcomed the fact that this charge will be dealt with in a civil and properly constituted court. But he added, and I quote, a charge is not a conviction and the presumption of innocence applies. So far, there's been trial by accusation. And what the court process will prove is for all sides of the story to be heard and the truth to be established, unquote. Well, all this following an ABC Four Corners report showing Oliver Schultz allegedly shooting an Afghan in a wheat field. In other words, you go to war, it's kill or be killed, and you now have to be careful who you shoot and why. And if you're not shot on the battlefield, they'll metaphorically shoot you when you come home. Our vets are treated abominably. And here Oliver Schultz is in police custody and presumably will stay there until he appears in Downing Centre local court on May 16. May 16. The man is in custody. May I remind viewers that the government and the apologists for the Brereton report of General Yamashita, who was hanged on February 23, 1946, for crimes committed by his Japanese forces in defence of the Philippines. Yamashita was not personally accused himself of committing any crime, but he was court-martialed and hanged for, quote, failing in his duty as commander of the Japanese forces. The US Supreme Court upheld the decision that he be put to death because, quote, a commander can be held accountable for crimes committed by his troops, even if he didn't order them, didn't know about them, or didn't have the means to stop them, unquote. It's called the Yamashita Standard. It has been adopted by the Geneva Convention, and we are a signatory to the Geneva Convention. The Yamashita Standard is that, and I quote, the highest ranking officer is accountable for and should be prosecuted and convicted of the crimes of every officer and soldier under his command, even if he or she is unaware of that crime or was unaware and actually gave orders to stop it. Ignorance of the actions of his or her subordinates and failed attempts to stop them are not a defence. Unquote. So, by all means, charge Oliver Schultz. But why can we abandon the Amashita standard? Where I quote again, the highest ranking officer is accountable for and should be prosecuted and convicted of the crimes of every officer and soldier under his command. So who were the commanding officers? when Oliver Schultz was on duty in Afghanistan. Those people are currently the Big Brass, the Blazer Brigade, the Starched Shirts Brigade, the Epaulets. You see them all the time. They were the commanders in Afghanistan. Why aren't they prosecuted? Or do we ignore the Geneva Convention? I repeat, if you want to prosecute Oliver Schultz and we're a signatory to the Geneva Convention, 
Why aren't we prosecuting those who were in command of the Afghan operation? Because the US Supreme Court upheld the decision to hang General, General Yamashita, who was not personally accused of committing any crime. But the court argued, quote, a commander can be held accountable for the crimes committed by his troops, even if he did not order them, did not know about them, or did not have the means to stop them, unquote. This is not over, I can tell you by a long shot. But present and past SAS soldiers have to live with all of this. And you've got to ask how many more years do politicians plan to torture Australian soldiers on the basis of an ABC report? We are talking about buying nuclear submarines in the defence of the nation. This is a critical responsibility of government, the defence of the nation. But the charging of Oliver Schultz on the basis of an ABC report means that politicians seem intent on turning the armed forces into some social laboratory. As Professor David Flint once said to me in an interview, and I quote, just as well such an approach didn't apply in the Second World War, otherwise the rising sun would be flying over Canberra today. Tomorrow, I'll give you a rundown of where I think the cards will fall in this New South Wales election on Saturday. But let me say now, that which is difficult to say, the Perrottet government can't win and it doesn't deserve to win. Everywhere you turn, there is money being thrown around. It's borrowed money. As I was preparing this, I noted a story that one of the new Manly ferries has suffered another steering failure and the operator had to pull the vessel from service, all of which highlights ongoing concerns about defects plaguing the three catamarans purchased to replace larger freshwater ferries. I've supported the Liberal Party for years and I've raised thousands of dollars for them. I am disgusted that Dominic Perrottet presents himself as a Liberal leader because Liberals believe in lower taxes and smaller government and less regulation. Here we have a budget brought down last year, which has not received the appropriate attention, where the Perrottet and Keane people are boasting a supremacy in economic management. The budget is an embarrassment, nothing short of an embarrassment. A budget of $95,000 million, $95 billion. Savings, $32 million. A $27 billion spending spree. Expenditure growth, 26.5%. There is no precedent in Australian politics for this level of extravagance. A metaphor of this, of course, is the flag on the Harbour Bridge. The flagpole for the Aboriginal flag was to be $25 million. Flagpole. Shame alone led them to question such spending. It was supposed to take four years to stick it up there. But in 1923, it took nine years to build the whole damn bridge. Now, I know you're most probably saying, oh, but what about the other mob? Well, there are headlines today about MINS and scrapping the public sector wage cap. The reality is simple, MINS is right. Nurses, police, teachers, ambulance workers, paramedics have ridiculously low pay. And that's why we're short on numbers. Now, this is the problem with the Perrottet government and with the Treasurer Keane. They can afford money for every useless green project on earth, hundreds of millions of dollars, but now they think it's an election weapon to attack MINS on scrapping the public sector wage cap. What they don't tell you is the same parliamentary budget office has compared the cost of both major parties' election commitments and found that Labor's election commitments will deliver a $1.3 billion boost to the bottom line compared to that of the coalition. Yesterday, I saw a big spread on education policy. 
the Perrottet government can talk forever, but we have indoctrination, not education, and nothing to address it. 15-year-old students here are four years behind those in China. But it's the forgotten people that most condemns this Perrottet government. Casino, police investigating vicious incidents after dozens of fights in the middle of the town. Primary school children and parents watching the fights, with some even shouting encouragement, hit her or get him. This is happening in Perrottet's New South Wales. There were fatal stabbings of two young men last year in the space of a few weeks. Where are the resources to address all this? Yet here is the Liberal government that's more woke and green than anything else you can see in politics. One of my viewers wrote in his words, and I quote, current preferential employment opportunities are being allocated to organisations with one Indigenous director and who have a 50% Indigenous workforce. This is under the Perrottet government Indigenous com companies subsidised by you in their quotations for business. And a customer is subsidised, your money, for rewarding contracts to such Indigenous companies. As well under Treasure and Perrottet, we have this thing called the Transport Asset Holding Entity. You don't hear about this. Set up to artificially inflate the New South Wales budget. Labor indicated it would abolish it if it won the election. So, early this month we learned that the New South Wales Government Rail Corporation was so worried it'd be scrapped by MINS, it designed a package worth hundreds of thousands of dollars for its senior executives. And there'd be payouts when they left. Now these are our government economic managers. The board of this transport asset holding entity approved the redundancy scheme last year, the day after the government got wind of Labor's plans to abolish it. And reports say the chief executive, Benedict Colan, and her executive team were to be beneficiaries of this scheme. The CEO, Colan, would be eligible, are you ready for this? For redundancy payout, a payout of $272,000. If the outfit was wound up, wound up, economic management, eh? The CEO of this outfit is on almost six, woman, $600,000 with 35 staff. The Transport for New South Wales Secretary, and you know what a mess public transport is, is on 620,000. Eight transport asset holding entity executives earn an average of 360,000 a year. And when the crisis engulfed this mob, T-A-H-E, last year, the government decided not to approve the redundancies. Perrottet was the treasurer. And you might remember that the Auditor-General delayed signing off on the state's finances in 2021 due to, quote, significant accounting issues. Perrottet was the Treasurer, and they boast economic management. The Shadow Treasurer, Labor's Daniel Mookie, rightly said the Board needed to explain why it had tried to give out golden parachutes to its top brass. Now, I repeat, the Premier was the Treasurer, and this outfit were running amok with our money. The corporation in 2021 paid a PR company. We can't pay nurses, we can't pay police, we can't pay teachers, we can't pay paramedics. They paid a PR company 275000 to devise a reframing of its battered public image. Perrottet was the Treasurer. All this while we had ferries and river cats and trams in disarray, foreign-made rolling stock. And while I'm talking about woke, Remember, this is the same Premier who couldn't wait to sign up to The Voice, captured by the left, captured by the left. Yet he said in 2016, years ago, that Australians were reluctant to speak out 
for, quote, fear of falling foul of the PC police. Well, Perrottet, to his eternal shame, has joined the politically correct brigade. Dominic Perrottet is part of a government which has practised medical apartheid. Unvaccinated people are still being denied employment. Perrottet endorses the Treasurer, Matt Keane, who's a climate change obsessive. He's endorsed policies about coal and gas in the belief that the world is going to come to a horrible end if we approve new coal mines and new gas exploration. But they love the royalties from coal, 11.1 billion a year. But this government is asking to be re-elected by hoisting the state into further debt. The Premier spent plenty of time in Western Sydney, the same Western Sydney, as I've said, that needs more police. The Police Association said staffing levels in Western Sydney are a recipe for disaster. But the Premier says, elect us again. The state needs us. What it doesn't need is the level of debt that's being piled up. Think of your kids, the Premier said. Which kids? The ones who are missing out on swimming carnivals in Western Sydney because schools can't get charter buses. The number of people walking out of New South Wales emergency departments has doubled in 12 months. Senior nurses in public hospitals are resigning in droves. A desperate Premier now is saying he'll boost the number of nurses and doctors. The voters should ask, why haven't you already done that? Under this so-called Liberal government, the Bureau of Health Information has revealed that between July and September last year, 60,000 people left emergency departments before receiving treatment, up 87% on the same period in 2021. As a Liberal supporter, I am saying unapologetically, you can't elect these people who presided over these failures. We learned at the weekend that people are leaving New South Wales for other states at a higher rate than ever before. An exodus of more than 100,000 a year as cost of living and housing affordability are driving them away. Labor are right when they say this is proof that the Perrottet government has not done enough to improve living and working conditions in New South Wales. I mentioned earlier housing affordability or unaffordability and the cost of rent. People have had a gutful. The opposition leader Chris Minns is right when he said New South Wales would continue to hemorrhage talented people to other states until government improved conditions for essential workers and addressed housing supply. Fancy a government saying re-elect us when new figures show that there are more than 5,000 demountable classrooms in New South Wales schools. 5,000. One of which has been in place for more than 40 years. Carlingford West Public School is in Dominic Perrottet's own electorate. It has the highest number of demountable classrooms in New South Wales. 81 temporary learning spaces. This is a disgrace. And these figures had to be dragged out by a freedom of information. 5,093 demountables across the state's public schools. The top six, Carlingford West Public School, Riverbank Public, Castle Hill High, Chatswood High, Girrawin Public and the Ponds High School. The Teachers' Federation is saying the New South Wales government has cut over a billion dollars from the public school capital works budget and students are paying the price. Look, I'm sorry, it disgusts me. You cannot re-elect this mob. They are not interested in you. Bus services, on which the voter relies, have been plagued with delays and cancellations, leading to long queues of frustrated commuters. There's a shortage of drivers. Last Tuesday morning, every third bus scheduled to arrive at Lane Cove Interchange heading to the city was cancelled. And this government says re-elect us. And Dominic Perrottet says he's got five key priorities. 
and he'll fulfill them in six months. It is rhetoric and rubbish. Ask the people in the Northern Rivers where David Gingell, the former television guru, has said that the floods in the Northern Rivers have led children and young people into a black hole of despair. He said hopelessness, insecure housing, escalating alcohol or drug use, family breakdowns, David Gingell has said, are leading people into places no one should occupy. Whatever the rhetoric, I'm sorry, the flood victims like the bushfire victims have forgotten. Rural mayors who've had to help their communities through these devastating floods have said they've been forgotten during this election campaign. The Cabon mayor in the Central West, in the state electorate of Orange, said he was, quote, extremely pissed off. No funding was committed for buybacks before the government went into caretaker mode, unquote. Out of the town of Ugara, 340 kilometres west of Sydney, little population of 779. Don't worry about them. I mean, they were devastated by floods. We couldn't care. Not many votes there. Way back in November, forgotten people. In Forbes, 368 homes. I wonder, you know, what if these politicians think it could be me? 368 homes were severely damaged in the flood. The Mayor Phyllis Miller said she'd talk to the Deputy Premier Paul Toole who's a waste of space and the National Party will be in trouble next Saturday, but he was told about these problems. Nothing, nothing's happened. The Mayor of Cootamundra Gundagai Regional Council, Charlie Sheehan said, the bush needed, quote, a fair cut of the pie, and quote, we don't get the same services as the city. You see, because they don't have the same population. Not too many votes there, so forget them. I know, I was brought up in the bush. It sickens me that they don't count. Forgive my language, but forget all this bullshit promise stuff Money here, money there, money everywhere. Flood victims and bushfire victims have been abandoned. But everywhere you turn, there's a crisis. We then learn that more than one school in four of New South Wales principals, one in four New South Wales principals, school principals, were physically attacked last year. More than a third said they were bullied. And all these issues that I've raised, and there are many more, have occurred under the Perrottet government. They can't possibly be re-elected and they won't be. Forget the other mob, whoever they are. Politicians have to be punished for extravagance and debt on the one hand and the abandonment of the needy on the other. I'm not telling people to vote for. Though Mark Latham, as leader of One Nation, is the one politician who understands these issues and addresses them. But Mark Latham is a lone voice. I've said before, there is no Liberal Party, only in name. Big government, big debt, and even bigger betrayal of Liberal values have destroyed the Perrottet government's entitlement to be re-elected. Well, now, Dick Smith is a former Australian of the Year and a magnificent philanthropist. The thing I love about Dick Smith is that he challenges us all with ideas, but I venture to say that he's ignored more often than he's listened to. I've interviewed him many times in the past on the issue of population, but no one in government wants to touch it. He said as far back as 2018, that Australia's population was on its way to 100 million. And while that happens, he made the very valid point, our energy reserves decrease. He says simple market economics means the price of electricity will go up. And of course it has. He was right again. Pensioners are turning off their heating in winter. He also warned five years ago of rising levels of youth unemployment and underemployment that, quote, many young people can't get a job. And with automation, he said, and robotics, there will be fewer and fewer jobs, unquote. What Dick Smith wants is to bring immigration rates back from the unsustainable 200,000 per annum to a very generous 70,000, which I might add was the average under John Howard's prime ministership. 
And this was the rate of immigration when Paul Keating was prime minister. Then there's the question of housing, children and families living in apartments. He's gone on about this as I have for years. More than one in four apartments in Sydney is home to a family with children. Entire suburbs in this country are rezoned for apartments. Sleepy residential areas have become Singapore style mini cities. In New South Wales, there's an election on Saturday week. But I mean, if the government has its way, the Perrottet government, there'll be more than 700,000 units in blocks of up to 25 storeys built across suburban centres over the next two decades. Dick Smith has argued that the government quietly dumps the bulk of these into some of Sydney's most under-resourced areas. I mentioned five years ago that the bureaucrats of New South Wales under a coalition government had drawn up 40 high-rise hotspots. You've got to say this slowly. 35,000 new dwellings accommodating 150,000 new residents planned for the southwest of Sydney. But the government, which has presided over these plans, is now saying, vote for us, vote us back in. That region alone would need 40 new schools, 177 new hospital beds, seven new ambulance stations, six new fire stations, five new police stations, 15 new libraries, and 22 long daycare centres. Come on, someone is kidding. You've got that bloke in Manly, James Griffin, Minister for the Environment, Rob Stokes, who's leaving, Minister for Planning, and their bureaucrats are telling us that we'll need 725,000 new homes in New South Wales in the next 20 years. Last time I spoke to Dick Smith, we talked about the Surrey Hills High School being built on the site of the existing Cleveland Street Intensive English High School, 14 storeys, one of five high-rise high -rise government schools. Just imagine our kids are now being educated in high-rise buildings. And this is rich Australia with land to spare. Dick joins me. Dick Smith, you are always welcome. Look, we need to hear your thoughts. Away you go. Well, Alan, yeah, you're, you're covering it absolutely correctly. If we end up at 200,000 immigration per year, we'll end up at 100 million at the end of this century when our grandkids will still be alive. No one thinks that's a sensible number for Australia. I certainly don't. And it's uh, amazing to me that the government would go back to this 200,000 immigration. By the way, the Sydney Morning Herald last week said I was anti-immigration. And as you know, I'm pro-immigration, but at the sensible numbers, 70,000, which is the long-term average, and the numbers that we had when the Howard government was in. Mm. If we went back to 70,000, our population will round off at about 30 million and there's a chance that more people will be able to afford a house with a backyard otherwise, other than be put into high rise like termites, which mm. is just terrible. Absolutely. I've said before, and I'll say it again to my viewers, I voted Liberal all my life. I can't vote for this Liberal government who are piling debt upon debt and hanging it like an albatross around the necks of our kids. I mean, you have said to me before, and I quote you last time we spoke, surely each generation should not be worse off than the previous generation. We must remember we are in control. We can do something about it. Dick, and that starts with population and immigration. That's exactly right. Now, you would expect 
each generation would be better off. That's just a natural thing to expect, especially with our productivity and as we get more automation and more ways of earning money and being more productive. But that's not happening. When I was young, uh, when we, Pip and I married, we didn't have much money, but we bought a house with a backyard in Sydney for $30,000. It was on about $8,000 deposit, which we'd managed to earn. And so that was really good. We got into the housing market. Today, I'm told houses equivalent cost two or three million dollars. They're virtually unaffordable. I was talking to a young person just recently. She's a hairdresser, works six days a week. Her husband works six days a week and they cannot afford a house in Sydney. They're crammed in a little unit like termites. Absolutely. See, you also said, and these things need repeating, Dick Smith said to me last time we spoke, and I quote, every Aussie family has a population plan. They can have up to 20 children, but they don't. Instead, they have the number, he said, that they can give a good life to. But he said our major political parties have no similar plan for our country. Dick. Yeah, one of the problems is the political parties are under the hands of the billionaires and the, we've got a hundred billionaires in this country, many of them involved with property development. The greed is unlimited. They just want more and more people because they want to have more billions. And I say to them, first of all, I don't know if any person would need a billion dollars. I can't see why you would. And to me, the billionaires should say, one day you have to stop growing and we should have a plan for that at some stage. Brilliant. You also said... And I quote you again, this is Dick Smith. Just about every problem we have in the world today is harder to fix with more people. And you said, do we want an Australia where our children and grandchildren will never have a proper full-time career? Just coming back to the final thing about this population thing. Every major problem in the world is based on population. How come these people in Canberra and Macquarie Street don't understand this? Now, it's, it's absolutely remarkable. And you, point, you, you brought out a very good point that I brought out in those ads that I was running a few yes, years ago. Yes. I completely failed, by the way. Most people would stop me in the street yes. and say, Dick, I agree with you. I agree yes. with you. But no political party takes <laughs> no. it on. And no. one of the reasons is they say you're racist. This is the common yeah. thing. that The ABC is a really strong one for this. They constantly carp away about people who can't afford to get into the property market, poor people, which is absolutely right, they should be covering that, but they never link it to the huge immigration, 200,000 a year, yeah. taking us to 100 million in Australia. And one day, uh, by the way, the thing I've heard is that the reason we need this enormous immigration is because people are getting older. But of course, that just makes the problem worse <laughs> because all of those new people get older and you end up with more people <laughs> getting older. Yeah. One day we actually have to live in balance and, and cope with the fact that people are going to get older because you can't grow forever. Uh, you see, but the point, you're listening to this bloke and, and I tell you, they don't want to listen to him. I mean, if I could talk to him for an hour tonight about aviation. Oh, that's another story. Yep. Aviation. Now, he can't get a grant look in there, but come back to our children and grandchildren. You've said, do we want an Australia where our children and grandchildren will never have a proper full-time career? Yeah, well, the, the reason I'm saying that is that there's only a certain number of jobs available. And in the end, you'll find that you run out. In fact, 
there are jobs available, but they're jobs that people don't necessarily want. And that's important to look at that. I remember when I started my own business, started Dick Smith Electronics with $610, and I was able to build up that business. That's virtually impossible today. It's really impossible today because of globalization. The, the positive side of globalization is that we're all a lot wealthier, materially speaking, but the chance of someone opening a small business is harder to do. And if we have ever increasing population, it took me to get, unfortunately, we no longer have a helipad in uh, in Sydney anymore. Mm. So I had to drive in. It took an hour and a half to get here through the most incredible traffic. Now, wait for it. We're increasing by 200,000 a year. Sydney's going to go from three or four million to eight million. Yeah. What's the traffic going yeah. to be like? That's it's going to be said. impossible. You, you, you've talked <laughs> about living in a world of endless, your words, endless travel gridlock. That's yep. as we are today. Now yep. we're going to build on that problem. You've talked about sleepy residential areas, and we know where they are, becoming Singapore-style mini-cities. Just amplify that point. Yeah, well, look, the thing is, the thing we love about Australia is that we've got a small population and lots of open spaces. I fly with my helicopter out over the western suburbs now, and where there was farming land and five-acre blocks of land, they've now put houses in there, and pity I haven't got a photo with me, where there's no, the, the, it's a one-metre backyard, so there's no room for any trees. There's no room for the kids to play in a cubby house. Mm -hmm. All of these things that you think, well, then we're going to get more, as we get wealthier, we're going to have money for more room around our houses for our kids to play in more parks and more bushland. But it's the opposite. Go out on the western suburbs now and the houses are crammed together. They're like slums in Calcutta. They're like slums mm. in Calcutta. Now, you can't complain because that's the only thing that young couples can afford at that's the it. moment because that's we have this pressure from unbelievable immigration. Mm. I think I worked out it's something like five jumbo loads a week come in full and go out empty with the 200,000 extra we get every year. Mm -hmm. And I think the Labor government, the federal government is going to increase it to mm -hmm. 250 or 300,000 because that's what the billionaires want. Yes. It will just make it Absolutely. worse and worse. That's Look, it. They, I, tell, they tell the government when Dick says the billionaires <laughs> want, big business is telling government we need immigration because that's the only way you can grow the economy. I mean, the New South Wales government, the Perrottet government is saying vote for us next Saturday. And they want to build 700,000 units in blocks of up to 25 stories to yep. be built. You can't comprehend this to be built across suburban Sydney. And you mentioned the high-rise schools. Now, years ago in the 1970s, I went to Hong Kong and we were in this hotel and we could hear these kids singing and we looked across and these kids were in this tenement building and we thought, oh, these poor kids in Hong Kong have to live in a tenement building to go to school. Isn't that terrible? Aren't we lucky in Australia? Well, as you've pointed out, we're doing the same thing. We're putting our kids in high-rise tenement buildings and there's no playgrounds. There's nowhere they can't get out and build a cubby house because there's no space. Unbelievable. Bob Carr has said that political leadership wants to look the other way on these issues when their constituents in Sydney and Melbourne are being overwhelmed by the rate of increase. Tony Abbott questioned the rate of immigration and then gets labelled like you, anti-migration yeah. or a racist. Tony yes. Abbott said that the level of legal migration is now double the average of the Howard years. And Abbott's words, quote, more people means more pressure on roads and public transport. As anyone trying to move around Sydney or Melbourne knows only too well, he said, we owe it to the people already here to scale back the rate of immigration considerably, to take the pressure off communities, at least until infrastructure 
infrastructure, housing and immigration and integration have caught up. Now, he gets blamed like you get blamed as a racist or anti-migration. Yeah, yeah I'm pro-migration. Yeah. It's the reason our country is so fantastic. But it's 70 or 80,000 a year. That's a very generous number and it will mean that we could stabilise our population because everyone knows you can't grow forever. You can't end up with a trillion people in Australia. But growth, if you have perpetual growth, that's what you'll end up with. So one day we actually have to stop growing. Let's have a plan for it. But none of our major parties have any plan. And the Greens, I mean, you think the Greens would have a population plan. They don't. They have no plan at all. So it just means endless growth, endless gridlock and unaffordable houses for young couples. See, and to my viewers, can I just say, you've heard this man. I mean, government won't listen to him. But wonderful Australian achiever. Who do we listen to? Tony Abbott said, rightly, critics will denounce any change as populist. But that's what snobbish elites always say about something the public wants but they don't. Dick, let's come to tax. In your memoir, My Adventurous Life, and it's certainly been that, a wonderful adventurous life, you say, don't complain about your tax, which is a plea, of course, for more taxes on the wealthy. You say, I've always been pro the wealthy paying more tax. Rich Australians, including myself, can and should pay. Isn't it though true that if you tax something, you'll get less of it? So if you tax wealth, you'll get less wealth. Well, maybe, but look, we've got 100 billionaires in this country. Only 15% of them are known as philanthropists. So the other 85%, I understand some of them pay virtually no tax at all. Mm. But I, I have a different attitude and I put it in my book because I came home when I was 15 from my first pay packet and they'd taken the tax out and I complained to my dad. And my dad, <laughs> who was a typical working bloke, he was a salesman, he said, Dick, never complain about your tax. Look how fantastic our country is. Look at the schools, the education, the defence, the roads, the hospitals. And I suddenly realised from that point on, oh, he's right. This is a fantastic country. It needs to be paid for. Mm. Now, the reason I believe the wealthy should be paying more tax at the moment is that we've got this incredible debt. And to hand that debt on to our children and grandchildren is not right. We should be paying that back. And if you're wealthy like I am, we can afford to pay more tax. I have absolutely... Absolutely no doubt we can. How would you define wealth? Is it cash in the bank, assets <laughs> held, prospective income? Well, uh, uh, Mark Carnegie, John Singleton's one-time business partner, said <laughs> that the wealthiest 15% could pay 15% more tax. And so I agree with Mark Carnegie. We could. I'm one of the wealthiest 15%. We could pay 15% more tax and we wouldn't be broke. Now, I know people will say, oh, the government will then waste it. There's always a chance of that. But if it was put into a futures fund to pay back the debt, I think that would be worthwhile. But the problem is... Getting people to agree with that, most people won't. They, we all mm. want more from the government. We don't mm. want debt, but we mm. don't want to pay more tax. Yeah, that's quite right, isn't it? Of course, then this would lead. It would be a boon for accountants. The wealthy would be working to manoeuvre however they could to reduce the tax liability. Uh, yeah. There's many, as you rightly say, there's a whole lot of people out there. I mean, we've got a bloke. We won't give him the status of mentioning him here, but he's in the paper every other day. And, of course, he's set up... A company, uh, we won't name that either, but they're buying houses everywhere worth millions and millions of dollars. How right. does anyone want five, six, seven houses worth 50 and 60 million dollars? Yes, and to me, see, in America, the I understand if you're wealthy, you have an obligation to be a public philanthropist. It's yes. just part of the culture. Yes. But it's not so here. No. We have, of those hundred billionaires, only three of them have
have signed the Bill Gates giving list, which means they're going to give half their money away. Andrew Forrest is a good example. He signed it and two others, but only three out of 100 billionaires are going to do that. And as I mentioned, only 15 of the 100 are known as philanthropists. And mm. I understand, I'm told, that some of them basically pay no tax at that's all. Correct. That's and that's correct. really sad. What about this coronavirus? Because it seems to many that post-coronavirus or coronavirus itself was a metaphor that we've seemed to have lost the work ethic. We've become a dependent, not an independent culture. Yeah, I don't have any evidence of that. You mentioned that to me, and I, I hope that's not so. There seems to be some hints that it is so, and that's really sad because the work ethic... Look, luckily, when I first got a job, I was 15, and you weren't, you weren't without a job for a few days. There was For many days at all, you basically knew you had to go and get a job, and I didn't have any friends who were on the dole in those days. Things seem to have changed now, and there seems to be an attitude of, I don't want to work, and I can get uh, social services, so I'll be OK. That's a pity. I hope it hasn't changed because of COVID. That would be really bad if it has. How can we be arguing about nuclear submarines and deny Australians the access to nuclear power? Right. Well, this is, I'm really glad you brought this up because I'm pro-nuclear. In fact, I'll go as far to say so that I. unless Australia goes to nuclear, we will not be able to reduce the carbon in the atmosphere. And people want to do that. I think it's important to do it. We have to go nuclear. The problem is we're the only OECD country in the world that has a law that says we can't use nuclear. And so when the CSIRO recently did a report where they claimed that solar and wind is cheaper than coal, which is not true, because once you put the storage in, it's too expensive. But did the CSIRO look into nuclear? No, they didn't, because every state and federally, it's prohibited to use it. Now, this is a free country. And you've just pointed out we're moving to nuclear submarines, which I think is a sensible and forced decision on us. And But then to say we're the third largest seller of uranium in the world, France is 70% nuclear powered and you never hear a murmur about it. It's got the lowest carbon in the world for a developed country, but we can't use it at all. One day we'll have to make that decision because no country has ever been able to run 100% on renewables. It's simply not possible. Yeah, just say that again so that our viewers understand. You are saying yeah. you cannot power a country on renewables. No country in the world has ever done it. Even, look, down on King Island in the roaring 40s, they have this renewable power station and it's got huge windmills because it's in the roaring 40s. It's got solar cells. It's got batteries. And wait for it. It's got a huge diesel generator which runs the whole time. And if anything's going to show you that, unfortunately, it would be really fantastic if if solar was cheaper and, it, and if it was not intermittent and if you could afford the battery supply, we could run completely solar. That would be fantastic, but it's just simply not possible. Mm. No country in the world has ever done it. No one will be able to do it. And the longer we delay using nuclear, the longer we're going to keep putting carbon into the atmosphere. Dick, I interviewed the late Bob Hawke 18 years ago. He argued two things. One, get on with nuclear energy. Two, Australia should become a repository for nuclear waste. Mr. Hawke said to me, quote, Australia has the geologically safest place in the world for the storage of waste. He said what Australia should do, in my judgment, is an act of economic sanity 
an environmental responsibility to say we will take the world's nuclear waste. We could revolutionise the economics of Australia. What are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I know where we could store the nuclear, the nuclear waste. I, I, not many people have been where I've been, and that is down into the uh, uranium mine, which is in South Australia, where most of our uranium comes from. I've driven down into there, and there are these huge, great caverns where you could store the nuclear waste for the world in complete dryness, in complete safety. It's where the uranium that we sold them came from. And so that would be the ideal place to store it. But it's the range of uranium mine. But unfortunately, that's uh, not allowed in Australia, no. of course. And, as, and as, as Mr. Hawke said, you could actually retire your national debt, charge the world. <laughs> I mean, France, France accept nuclear waste and period, and we can't do it. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting. You might wonder where our nuclear waste goes, because we have a nuclear reactor right in the middle of our biggest yeah. city yeah. and uh, it's used for nuclear medicine. Do you realise the waste is shipped out? It goes all the way to France where it's reprocessed and then it's shipped all the way back. And they even have a police escort with blue lights as they ship it from the Wollongong Harbour up and they put it back in the suburb of Sydney where the nuclear reactor is and store it there. So it must be pretty safe if you can store it in the middle of Sydney. Lucas and of Heights. course, one out of three Australians benefit from nuclear medicine. So there's no doubt we have a nuclear reactor here. We know what we're doing when it comes to nuclear. See, viewers, you could either be excited <laughs> listening to this interview or depressed because governments for years and years, Dick's almost lost his breath arguing simple propositions. Notice how he talks in language that everyone can understand and it makes sense, but they don't want to listen to these sorts of people. Dick, you are a breath of fresh air and it's always illuminating to speak with you. Wonderful Australian of the Year and you'll always be the Australian of the Year for many people. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us. Thanks, Alan. Fantastic. Dick Smith. It's not just because there is an election on Saturday. This is true whenever you hear a politician speak. There is this glib talk about cost of living and there's no doubt that this cost of living crisis has many people and many families on their knees. You might recall I said a couple of weeks ago that charities are now being swamped by mortgage holders. The Food Bank CEO, Brianna Casey, has said that 30% of households with mortgages experienced food insecurity between 2021 and 2022. To quote her, these are often double income households or sometimes households working with adults working two jobs. All the expenses, she said, in their lives are increasing faster than their income. Unquote. Just imagine if you go to bed at night with that knowledge, the expenses are increasing faster than the income. This is the guts of the crisis facing many people when they go into the polling booth on Saturday and they know that government has done nothing to make their lot easier. I've said before that a record number of people are turning to Lifeline Australia for support with financial stress and homelessness. Calls to Lifeline relating to financial issues and homelessness were up by 49% between August last year and January this year. A Lifeline financial counsellor said, demand for financial crisis support is unlike anything she's seen before. You tell me if anything that Perrottet has said or Keane has done, forget Mins, he's not the government, anything. Is there anything that Perrottet and Keane have done to address this issue? As Lifeline said, quote, people aren't ashamed to talk about financial difficulties anymore because everyone has them. 
Remember the Lifeline number, by the way, 13, 11, 14. They're available 24 seven. And to anyone who's struggling, remember, there's always someone prepared to listen. But every day I read of people forced to sell their home because of rising interest rates. Why wouldn't a supposedly liberal government have as an election policy, but they know everything. Perrottet, no, you can't tell Perrottet anything. He knows the lot. But why wouldn't you accept a commitment as the liberal government that you'd go to Canberra to lobby the government to embrace what I've said, a fixed asset should have a fixed interest rate. That is, when someone's buying a home, they go to the bank and as in America, negotiate a fixed interest rate for the next 20 years. Then they know where they stand and they don't have the kind of stress they're now enduring every month waiting for what the Reserve Bank will do on interest rates. This talk of further interest rate increases. And people are saying that nothing they've heard from government has any relevance to their problem. I saw a headline which said, no way to fix a rate rise disaster. Well, there is a way. Fixed assets should have fixed interest rates. Both leaders have made much of Western Sydney. But you don't hear a squeak about the fact that in Greater Western Sydney, home prices have increased by an average of up to 720,000. That's increased, increased since the 2019 election. Leppington in the southwest, a seat that's really in contention, but Labor will win it, has seen house prices increase by almost 80% since the 2019 election. It's the biggest increase in housing costs across all Sydney electorates. Treasurer Matt Keane wouldn't have a clue about any of this. Regions like Kellyville and Hawkesbury, house prices have gone up by 65%. No understanding of this by the Perrottet government whose campaign said, think of your kids, vote Liberal. Who is thinking of their parents? In the Castle Hill electorate, house prices before the 2019 election averaged $1.35 million. The median price now, 2.09 million, a rise of 720,000. Nothing by a Liberal government demonstrates an understanding of this or a response to it. So now you're saying, oh, well, what about MINS? They are not the government. As I have demonstrated earlier in the program, Perrottet heads a so-called Liberal government, which bears no relation to Liberal philosophy, and they've been there 12 years. As a result of the housing crisis and unaffordability, well, we now they've got a rent. We're presiding over a rental crisis. Queues of renters at property inspections are familiar every weekend. In Sydney's inner and eastern suburbs, those inspection numbers have doubled. Hundreds of people pursuing the same property for rent. So the prices go up. I'll cover that in a minute. But it's a landlord's market, landlord's market. And again, the government seems to have no understanding of this issue. Da domain data shows the number of rental check-ins, that is, people who gave their personal details to an agent to enter a property, the rental check-in per, list per listing in the city's eastern suburbs, because people try to be close to their work, so they live close to the city, up 145% in February. That is, people wanting to inspect a home, giving the agent the right to enter any property, that, those numbers are up 145% compared with the same month last year. There was a 100% increase in the number of people inspecting properties in central Sydney. Queues up to 50 people, commonplace in suburbs like Chippendale and Zetland, where two bedroom apartments listed on domain for inspection had an average asking rent of over $1,000. These are people out there trying to put a roof over their head. Hundreds of them seeking the one property. There's been an 84, because they can't afford a house, there's been an 84% increase in people inspecting rental properties 
since March 2021. 84%. Nothing said in all the money being sprayed around by the Perrottet government goes anywhere near demonstrating an understanding of this crisis. Every available statistic, whether from Suicide Prevention Australia or New South Wales Health, indicates that the cost of living crisis is behind rising levels of reported distress and mortgage repayments and rental costs are the dominant feature behind these stats. Which brings me to what I've said before. Young lady approached me, two bedrooms that she shares with a friend. Again, rental of approximately $560. An email from the agent she got, and the rent's going up by $200. That's over 33%. The wage doesn't go up. Not a word from the Perrottet government that indicates any understanding of this problem. Which brings me to the Residential Tenancies Act of 2010. I suspect Treasurer Keane and Premier Perrottet on their lofty salaries know nothing about this. But when it comes to the rental crisis and rental prices, there are specific rules that landlords must follow when increasing rent for residential properties. And these rules are designed to protect tenants from excessive and unjustifiable rent increases. Now, I've said before, I'm all for someone making a profit. That's negative gearing, I'm all for that. But hang on, it's gotta be justifiable and reasonable. Now, under, but I must say, the rules also still have a bias in favour of the landlord, because under the Residential Tenancies Act of 2010, a landlord can't increase rent more than once in 12 months. And the landlord must give the tenant at least 60 days written notice of the increase, which must be reasonable and justifiable. Now, if the tenant's lease is fixed, you can't increase the rent, but the landlord has to demonstrate that the proposed rent increase is justified by factors such as renovations, improvement of the property, or quote unquote, market changes. I suspect in the circumstances I've spoken about, there were no renovations, no improvements to the property, but with people queuing up half a mile, presumably the agent and the landlord says, I can charge what I like. Market changes. Tenants have the right to dispute the rent increase if they believe it's excessive or unjustified, but all of this costs money and they're terrified about being thrown out because there's nowhere to go. Which prompts the question, if this is the massive problem it appears to be, can you tell me any instance where this Perrottet government and Treasurer Keane have addressed the issue of rent, shown any sympathy to the problem about these exorbitant increases? They're talking about cashless gambling cards and a whole heap of other stuff, throwing money around, trying to bribe the voter. And out there, it goes completely over the heads of the people in Struggle Street. They can't afford a house and they now can't afford the rent. And there are things that the government should be doing to address that problem. Firstly, lobby Canberra so that banks charge fixed interest rates on fixed assets. Secondly, make sure the Residential Tenancy Act of 2010 means something to the poor coot who is renting. Or is the Perrottet government and the Treasurer, Matt Keane, who's out of his depth, are they happy for rents to be jacked up by well over 30% just because of the market? Well, apart from the bank crisis in America, the collapse of the specialist bank in Silicon Valley, all the stories are Donald Trump. Just on Silicon Valley, the alarmists love the headlines. They talk about collapse. The Silicon Valley issue is one of liquidity. They lent out money, as banks do, to seduce clients at low interest rates. Then they bought securities to cover the loans at a higher rate 
than they were paying depositors. The depositors wanted their money back, but interest rates had gone up, so the value of the securities had gone down, and the bank either had to, assets it couldn't sell or had to sell at a loss, and therein lies the mess. But this should have been covered by regulators who should have a better handle on the behaviour of banks. To suggest this represents a risk in Australia is alarmist in the extreme, but there are concerns here nonetheless, and I will address that later in the program. But to Donald Trump, and even his critics have criticised the prospect of charges being laid against him on the allegation of paying hush money to a former porn star. I don't think I can think of anything more trivial. But anyway, even his rivals have called the charges politically motivated. The former Vice President Mike Pence, who's expected to run against Mr Trump for the Republican nomination for the 2024 presidency, said any possible indictment was political. Quote, here we go again, another politically charged prosecution against the former President of the United States, unquote. So said Mr Pence. The House Speaker defended Mr Trump against, quote, an outrageous, outrageous abuse of power. What do we make of this? Let's see what Peggy Grandy thinks. And she joins me, as always, from America. Peggy, thank you for your time. Your thoughts on this? Well, thank you, Alan, for having me on. This is something that nobody would be talking about at all if this was John Smith. And really, this is not something the American people care about. This is old news. This is somebody trying to make a name for themselves, but they don't have a strong case to stand on. And like you said, there's bipartisan agreement. This is a very weak case. This is a George Soros-funded district attorney who has taken a state misdemeanor, which the statutes of limitation have already expired on. He somehow elevated it to a federal felony, which also the statute of limitations has expired on. And he doesn't have the jurisdiction or the legal authority to do either. But he's going to go ahead, maybe, and do this anyway. And this is when there's incredible crime on the rise in New York City and throughout the state. This is not what New Yorkers want. Nothing of this is going to make life better for the citizens and residents of New York. Isn't that's interesting what you said about the statute of limitations. So how so basically this is so long ago that the right to prosecute has expired. So how does this fool of a man brag get around all of this? Well, you know, we've seen the Democrats get away with a lot of things that they're not allowed or not supposed to do. So this is just about making a name for himself. He and the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, both of them made basically campaign pledges saying, we're going to go after Donald Trump. They did it under the guise of no one's above the law. But we know that this is a partisan witch hunt. People see right through it, and it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, they, they haven't made too many runs, have they? They had a go about January 6, and that came to nothing. They had a go about his tax returns. That came to nothing. They invaded his home in Mar-a-Lago. That came to nothing. This seems, from the distance where I am, to be an own goal for the left. I mean, a political stitch up, you make the point, but for the benefit of our viewers, this is a New York district attorney, this bloke called Alvin Bragg. He is the first person of color. He was elected in America, these people, they are the equivalent of our Crown prosecutors and they are elected. But this bloke was always an anti-Trump candidate. And Becky, isn't this the bloke who downgraded 52% of felony cases to misdemeanor so obviously knows little about law and evidence in the Manhattan District Courts. This bloke's got a record really of being hopelessly of the left. 
He does. And unfortunately, this is what we see throughout the state of New York and unfortunately in a lot of blue states all across America, including California, my beautiful home state that the Democrats have completely ruined. And we we know this is partisan and they're putting the scales of they're tipping the scales of justice against conservatives, against people like Donald Trump and against any of his supporters. We see criminals going loose on the streets. We see rising crime. We see no big cash bail has been eliminated and these perpetual criminals are going right back to the streets. And so this is not what the citizens want, but this is what these Soros-backed, Soros-funded prosecutors, district attorneys and attorneys general are pushing. Just for our viewers here, I should say that this case was pursued by the federal government because, and they gave up, they didn't have enough evidence. And now this turkey thinks he's going to catch a big fish. It seems that Trump's problem is he's a powerful Republican because evidence is emerging that the Biden family received as much as $3 million from a Chinese Communist Party-linked energy company. Now, no prosecution and no debate about that. What's happening to the Bidens? Well, we've seen one of a dozen or more of these suspicious activity reports come out, finally released from the U.S. Treasury. Um, The House-led committee um, under Kevin McCarthy, the Republican House, is starting to look into this. And these suspicious activity reports flag any international transactions over a certain amount that might be compromising to American national security. And here it goes right back to the Bidens. Uh, Not only was Hunter Biden paid, but his um, former sister-in-law was paid as well as Joe Biden's brother. And so this money is getting very close to Joe Biden himself. People aren't going specifically after Hunter Biden, but the the dots of connectivity are getting really close to Joe Biden. That's what people care about. Is mm. he compromised? Is I'll he compromising come, yeah. America with these very close ties, ties to China? I'll come to the Hunter Biden thing in just a moment. I just want to ask you about another thing. Is Donald Trump sensible in posting on his truth social platform, protest, take our nation back? Is that a sensible move? I mean, his lawyer, this Susan Nichelles said, President Trump had no direct knowledge of an arrest, but he was reacting to leaks from, quote, a political prosecution, unquote, run by Bragg. Is what, was that sensible for Donald Trump to make those observations on social media? Well, I don't think it was a specific call to action. I think it was raising the awareness of we as Americans have got to be very, we have to have a heightened awareness of what's happening in our country. There are two tiers of justice. If it can happen to Donald Trump, it can happen to any of us. And so um, we know that his opponents take him seriously. His supporters take him seriously, but not literally. The people who can't stand him take him literally at his word, but don't take him seriously. They think he's a joke. Mm. So they're going to twist around his words to mean whatever they want. But this was just a warning. American people, be aware. There's Mm. two tiers of justice. They're coming after me and they're coming after you. Yes. I mean, again, for the viewers, this is based on the issue here is that he has paid this money to an alleged porn star who we reportedly slept with and so on. And he has said many times, how do you shut these people up and they pay to the money? But what I think this case is on is whether then Donald Trump falsified business records to cover up the payment. Now, President Trump, I mean, he's, they've had a shot at him on every front. 
And he said in relation to this, that this is based on an old fairy tale and fully debunked by numerous other prosecutors. So just before we go to Hunter Biden, Peggy, do you think he'll be charged? What's your intelligence on this? Well, what Trump has talked about is based on a leak and leaks we know never play out well and it could in fact compromise any case that they are going to bring. We do know there's two tiers of justice and the Democrats better be very careful about doing this because Elon Musk has said, if we see Donald Trump arrested, he will win a landslide victory. We've said, uh, we've heard others say, if we see Donald Trump in handcuffs, he is certainly the 47th president of the United States because he will have been proven right once again. There is a deep state that is the enemy of the American people who are conservative and who believe differently than some of these very liberal progressive people who are in power. I mean, the the other issue here, of course, uh, there are serious issues attached with security. Apparently, law enforcement and court officials, including the New York Police Secret Service, the New York State Court Officers, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and judges are meeting to discuss security and logistics if Mr. Trump were to make his first court appearance. And all this will include how to handle, obviously, a rush of protesters around the main criminal courthouse. Just finally, Peggy, Americans, apart from objecting to what's happened and what is potentially likely to happen to Donald Trump, they must object to the cost of all of this over a political prosecution. Absolutely. And especially when we see New York and New York City in particular, literally crumbling before our very eyes. People are moving out in droves. It's unsafe to be there, to live, to have a business. Um, They almost elected a Republican governor over it and took took back House seats during the midterms. New York is a place that is in decline. This is not what New Yorkers want. Time, money, taxpayer um, investment put into. Mm. And so I think it will hopefully go away as quickly as it came. I don't see Donald Trump being walked in mm. handcuffs into a courthouse in New York anytime soon. Just on the Bidens, now that the Republicans have taken the majority in the House, which means control of investigative committees, has the spotlight on Hunter Biden intensified? Now, members, of Congress investigating his business dealings and whether they had any impact on Joe Biden's decision as president or vice president. Peggy, Hunter Biden served on the board of the Ukrainian National Gas Company, Burisma Holdings, from 2014 to 2019. He knew nothing about gas, but emails on the Hunter Biden laptop, which was abandoned in a Delaware repair shop, supposedly contained a trove of emails, text, sexual material, financial documents, but reportedly detail how he regularly used his father's political clout to capitalise on overseas business dealings. Now, the mainstream press ignored these issues during the presidential campaign. Peggy, the emails apparently suggest that Hunter Biden helped arrange a meeting with the Ukrainian gas company, this Burisma, with his father, In April 2015, Biden was vice president. Hunter Biden was lavishly remunerated, according to reliable reports. And from 2013 to 2018, Hunter Biden and his company brought in about $11 million via his roles as the attorney and a board member of this Ukrainian firm. Uh, Peggy, is this investigative committee any closer to getting on top of these issues? 
Oh, they absolutely are. And this is the first of many um, transactions that they are going to be able to look into. And it's getting closer and closer to Joe Biden. You know, Hunter Biden, you have to feel sorry for him. Everybody has a friend or a family member that has battled addiction of one kind or another. And it would be one thing if we just said, oh, that's too bad. We should stay away from the president's son and let him live in peace. But here's a man who has had no job, who has no real skill set, who has battled with addiction very openly and somehow is bringing in millions of dollars, not only for him, but for his family as well. We know that Joe Biden has been in public service over 50 years as vice president. He was a senator for many decades. And how does he then have this beautiful estate in a great part of Delaware? How does he have beachfront property on an exclusive beach in Delaware? How exactly does a poor, humble public servant have access to this kind of wealth? And we have to ask the question, what, it, what has his family done to bring in money that somehow has found its way into supporting Joe Biden's lifestyle? Mm. He has lied about this. He said he didn't know anything about it. We know that's not true because we've seen on the laptop um, that there were emails connected to him. He said he's never met anybody or talked to anybody that his son does business with. We know that's not true as well because we now see pictures. And he said he his family isn't, isn't involved in any corruption or influence peddling. And now we have money tracing right back to his family. Mm -hmm. So we're going to get closer and closer to this. The House-led committees with Kevin McCarthy as speaker, they are circling in the water around the Bidens. It's yeah. not about Hunter Biden. See, it's about the big guy, Joe Biden. So it's not only the Ukrainian gas company. I mean, here's this Chinese energy firm, CEFC, which over a course of 14 months, these are facts, paid almost five million US dollars to entities controlled by Hunter Biden. Now, Peggy, there are reportedly no documents which show what he did to earn this money, but it's a Chinese energy firm. Doesn't this raise questions about national security, business ethics, potential legal exposure? Of course it does. And we saw them try to play this with the Trumps. And yet the Trump children, they actually owned hotels and golf courses. And Ivanka had a beautiful international clothing and handbag and shoe line. And so they were internationally distributing these things, but they actually had a product and a business. And so when people are trying to say, well, the Trump kids did this too, it's not the same at all, because like you said, what did Hunter Biden do? What was his skill set? What did he sell? What did he make? What did he produce? The only thing we can come up with is he gave access to his father and made promises on mm. his father's behalf. So is this is this investigation by the House likely to demand more documents from Hunter Biden to see whether any of the income went to his father, who's now the president? You've got the FBI's former assistant director for counterintelligence, Frank Figliuzzi, saying there is a national security risk when foreign powers like China see an opportunity to get close to someone like Biden. Figliuzzi said last year, it's all about access and influence. And if you can compromise someone with both access and influence, that's even better. Now, Peggy, expenditure compiled on Hunter Biden's hard drive show he spent more than 200,000 a month, a month, from October 2017 to February 2018 on luxury hotel rooms, Porsche payments, dental work, cash withdrawals. Now, Twitter blocked links to all of this, to all of those stories at the last election. 
So where is the House Oversight Committee? I mean, it's planning to hold hearings and so on. Where do you think it's heading? Well, it's heading wherever the money trail leads. And this money trail is what they have been trying to get access to for a long time. When they were in the minority in the House, they weren't able to access these documents. And now, even though the Treasury Department is stonewalling the release of them, they slowly but surely are going to get these documents. We've only seen one out of a dozen or more. And so who knows where those are going to lead. But we have a, a keen suspicion where those are going to go. And it's getting closer and closer to Joe Biden himself. The American people should be very worried about this. They should demand answers about this because it has to beg the question, why did exactly Joe Biden allow for a Chinese spy balloon to casually roam all across the entire United States before it was shot down? Yeah. It begs the question that people want to know. Absolutely. And James Comer, the Kentucky Republican chairman of the House Oversight Committee, says his committee's investigation will look into a 2017 email, and this is amazing, allegedly found on the laptop that includes discussion of setting aside a certain percentage of the deal for, quote, the big guy. Now, I don't know how much of this has been shared with American voters, but Comer claims the email text shows Joe Biden was aware of Hunter Biden's business with the Chinese company. And James Comer claims those Hunter Biden business ties with the Chinese company influenced Biden's policy choices towards China. Now, Biden's denied all this, but Peggy, he's been found out before meddling with the truth when he was campaigning for president in Iowa, in Iowa in September 2019. Joe Biden told reporters, I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings. Now, Peggy, in that proposed venture with a Chinese energy company in May 2017, an email from one of Hunter Biden's business partners, it lays out how the percentages of equity from the proposed venture with that Chinese energy company could be divided. And one line of the email asks the question, 10 held by H for the big guy. Peggy, this is getting very, very close to the president of the United States. It is. And it's interesting because this Hunter Biden's laptop that they denied having anything to do with Hunter Biden. It Remember, we had 51 high level security officials saying it was Russian disinformation. Well, recently, Hunter has filed a suit against the owner uh, or the owner of the laptop repair shop where he left this laptop. And so he's now admitting that it was his, is his, and is suing the person who has released this private yeah. information yeah. after the last couple of yeah. Years of saying, no, it's not mine. It. I have nothing yep. to do with that. That's and so it. if that's his best defense right now, he knows he's in some trouble. Mm. Joe Biden is too. Well, just wrapping this up, Hunter Biden's, I mean, there's trouble here. Hunter Biden's former business partner, Tony Bobolinsky, told Fox News that he believed H stood for Hunter and the big guy was Joe Biden. Now, in 2017, Joe Biden was no longer vice president. But it seems that what is known about Hunter Biden's business deals with Ukrainian and Chinese companies creates an impression that he was making an awful lot of money off the prestige of being Joe Biden's son. But there doesn't seem to be any evidence at this stage that Hunter Biden's business transactions had influenced decisions that Joe Biden made as vice president or president. So just finally, where do you think this is heading? 
Well, people want to know, did it or did it not influence it? And if it didn't, then that's fine. But, you know, the left always says this isn't what the American people want. They don't want to look backwards. They only want to look forward. And they make that claim while they're looking backwards, going after Donald Trump again. What the American people do want is they want accountability. They want to know that there is one tier of justice for everybody, regardless of your political affiliation. And so this is a time when we see the handshake between Putin and Xi. We see North Korea increasingly aggressive. We see Iran almost having a nuke. And people are very afraid and worried. We've got radicals running the United States right now. We know that that's worrisome to the world as well. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. But the next week or two might be really telling, not only for 2024, but for the future of this country. Mm, good on you, Peggy. We'll leave it there. Great stuff, isn't she? Informed and articulate. Interesting times ahead. That's Peggy Grandy. She's the former executive assistant to Ronald Reagan, the lady who was very close to all the political action in America. See you next week, Peggy. Thank you, Alan. That's Peggy Grandy. Well, look, just before we go, the collapse of several banks, I talked about this with Peggy before, in the United States over the last fortnight, should be a warning sign for the big four banks here. Now, think about it. Silicon Valley Bank, as I said, was woke. It prioritised climate change. It assumed that interest rates would remain low forever, which led them to take risks. And now they've gone under. The situation isn't that much different when it comes to the Commonwealth Bank, ANZ, Westpac and NAB from a different perspective, because our big four banks are safe, but dreadfully woke. woke. And shareholders, where are you? And why don't you wake up? Our banks have turned their backs on Australia's most profitable industry, our resources sector. In fact, new data shows that the big four banks' exposure to the Australian resources industry has sunk to a decade low, while the profits of our resources sector reach record highs. But the big four banks have put all their eggs in the mortgage basket, which could be about to blow up. The numbers paint an unsavoury picture. During COVID pandemic, a record number of Australians were coaxed into taking on incredible amounts of debt at fixed ultra-low rates, but only for a couple of years. Almost 600,000 fixed mortgages have been rolled off their low fixed rates last year. Another 880,000 are due to roll off their fixed rates this year and 450,000 next year. This means there are still well over a million mortgage holders who will see their monthly mortgage repayments increase by over $1,100. That's just assuming an average mortgage of about $600,000 and a cash rate of 3.6%. Now, the consequences of this will be profound. If people can't keep up with their skyrocketing mortgage repayments, they'll have to sell their house. And if these people sell their houses at the same time, housing prices collapse. The worst part, well, in the United States, if you sell your house to pay off your mortgage and you still owe money to the bank, you walk away without having to pay another cent. But in Australia, mortgage holders will have to pay off the outstanding debt on their mortgage, even after selling their house and giving all the proceeds of the sale to the bank. The short point, Aussie mortgage holders get screwed by the banks if they're forced to sell their house to pay off their mortgage and the banks walk away richer than ever. Now, one of the big four have gone so hard on the mortgage market over the last few decades. I looked at the figures today. In 1997, 
of the Commonwealth Bank's loans were home loans, 51%. Fast forward to 2022, it's now 72%. In other words, the big four have deprived our miners, our power generators, our farmers, our builders, the productive parts of our economy. They've denied them cheap credit. 90% of our mining sector, the very industry which sustains our economy, 90% foreign owned. Our woke banks don't want to fund the resource industry. But as I said earlier, where are the shareholders? They should be speaking out when the same resource industry is returning record profits, but the industry's foreign owned because it can't raise money from our woke banks. Indeed, our banks have spent the last 25 years lending to people who want to buy a home, which has artificially pushed, pushed up the price of property, coaxed millions of people into incredible amounts of debt that they can only afford at low interest rates. Now, I'm not in favour of all this regulation, but as Paul Keating once said, if banks don't behave themselves and don't act in the national interest and refuse to fund the resource sector, that is overt behaviour which is not in the national interest, then the national government should step in. I think in what I've explained, you'd call it a racket. That's it from me for tonight. Thank you for your company. Don't forget you can listen to the podcast of tonight's program from 6am tomorrow. Just go to the podcast app and search ADH TV. And remember, you can always email me, alanjones at adh.tv. And as I've been saying for years, you are my best researchers. I'll see you tomorrow night on our extended program. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.